Okay, so thank you for that. Um, I'm now going to turn to introduce Martin Lachlan. That really just doesn't need to be done. You all know Martin incredibly well. Um, he is a redoubtable figure. He's a towering intellect, certainly in the field of public law. It is, he has stamped his mark on it in no un, unquestionable way. Um, I grew up as a student reading Martin's early work on planning procedures uh, and telling me how they were expressive of all sorts of different substantive values in a way which made all of a sudden made actually studying administrative law make sense. Um, I've since moved away from public law, as Martin reminded me, I've wasted a damn good public lawyer and moved to that funny stuff called regulation. But, uh, you know, you still kind of hark back to the, to the olden days. Um, Martin has been working in this field for many, many years. He has a huge list of publications. He has some significant milestones and markers within the field of public law. Um, most recently, I mean, he has a small book on British Constitution, but Martin's the type of person we kind of whiz over that. So that's just a kind of little thing that came out. Main things, the foundations of public law, the idea of public law, the sword and the scales, and the list really just goes on and on. We are absolutely delighted as a committee that he did accept our invitation to come and give the Chorley Lecture. He's obviously stood up here himself in a similar position to myself as, as general editor and introduced a number of Chorley speakers himself in the past. So it is a huge honour and delight to have you here today, Martin. Um, and he's going to talk on a lecture called The Constitutional Imagination. Thank you very much indeed, Julia, for that kind introduction. I am conscious of following in the train of former general editors invited to give the annual lecture in honour of the founding editor of the Modern Law Review. Unlike Lord Wedderburn and Professor Roberts, I did not know Lord Chorley personally. I trust then that I might, in paying tribute to Theo Chorley's undoubtedly pioneering work in establishing the MLR, I trust I might also commend the efforts of Wedderburn and Roberts in building so successfully on Chorley's foundational achievement. I shouldn't say more than that. Uh, if Bill Wedderburn were with us, he would, I know what his response to the lecture I'm going to give would be. It's, where's the law in this? And Simon, dear Simon, would be questioning my use of the way in which I use ritual and myth. Oh, well. <clears throat> if the American Revolution had been only a struggle by colonists to achieve their independence from the British crown, it would be of no great moment. Empires rise and fall, territories are acquired and lost. This is the story of the will to power down the ages. The revolution is of world historical significance because it achieved a revolution in the principles and practices of government. The American colonists made a stand not just for themselves, but for the world. Until that moment, government had always taken a monarchical form with militarism as its driving spirit. 
The revolution, by contrast, created a system of government on a moral theory, that of the indefeasible rights of men. By the time Thomas Paine had expressed those sentiments in 1792, these events had been overtaken by the dramatic unfolding of the revolution in France. In the three years since Louis XVI had called the Estates General, monarchical government had been overthrown, the feudal system and its order of of nobility abolished, the church removed from its privileged status, and the republic proclaimed. In January 1793, That revolution was then sealed in blood by the execution of the king. Republican government, Payne proclaimed, is now revolving from west to east by a stronger impulse than government of the sword had moved from east to west. These events, the revolutionaries asserted, signaled the emergence of a new era of humanity, a key feature of which was the establishment of an altogether novel sense of constitution. Political constitutions were no longer to be viewed as some ideal expression of a nation's culture, manners, and traditional forms of rule. A constitution in the modern sense is a document. It's a document drafted in the name of the people that establishes the main institution's of government, specifies the relationship between government and the people, and takes effect as fundamental law. Since the 18th century, these documentary constitutions have been adopted throughout the world at critical moment in a nation's history. During the 20th century, a lingering conservative distrust of paper constitutions and mere constitutional machinery gave way to an almost universal acceptance of the need to draft constitutions that established the basic terms of a nation's political compact. And in the last 30 years or so, the progressives' distrust in the use of written constitutions as a tool to halt the continuing social revolution has apparently waned. The claim the Constitution specified the authoritative ground rules of politics is now widely accepted. Whether the matter involves an assertion of a nation's right to self-determination, a challenge to the legitimacy of the exercise of governing power, uh, a plea to be treated with equal dignity in and respect, or even a basic claim for justice in distribution, that political demand is now invariably cast in the form of a constitutional claim. It is in this sense that we live today in the age of constitutionalism. This is a recent phenomenon and it invites reflection. Under what conditions can a written constitution organize an association of people into a common agent, one that acquires its identity and modes of collective action through that text? 
What leads us to believe that those who acquire governing power will constrain themselves to act in accordance with these constitutional rules? How does a constitution drafted at a particular moment in history maintain its authority through time as social and political conditions change? What are the legal and political implications of entrusting the authoritative interpretation of that constitution to a judiciary insulated from accountability to the people in whose name it acts? I don't intend to offer answers to any of these questions this evening. What I do want to suggest, what I do want to suggest is that questions of that nature, important questions, questions of that nature cannot be addressed before considering the relationship between thought, text and action in the constitution of modern political authority. And it's for the purpose of, of considering that prior question that I invoke the idea of the constitutional imagination. The constitutional imagination refers to the manner in which constitutions harness the power of narrative, symbol, ritual and myth to project an account of political existence in ways that shape and reshape political reality. The, this power of, imaginate, of the imagination to create a political world is a modern phenomenon. The medieval image of the world as a fixed, unitary, cosmic order had first to be effaced. Expressing a moment in thought rather than a specific moment in historical time Modernity is signaled by the emergence of discrete domains of thought and belief that operate in accordance with their own autonomous laws and regularities. These domains include those of science, aesthetics and economics, but our specific concern is with the political domain. In this political domain, we moderns imagine ourselves to be free, equal and sociable beings and in order to protect that liberty, equality and sociability, we draft a constitution to establish a system of government with authority to make the laws by which we live. Unable any longer to rely on the charismatic power of the ruler or an unreflective acceptance of traditional practices, the constitutional mode of thinking rests its authority on consent. This explains the centrality of social contract thinking. Beyond the historical experience of government, we seek constitutional authority neither in history nor in nature, but in some underlying scheme of intelligibility. This ideal constitution forms a set of understandings that has the potential to shape an entire repertoire of conduct. In pre-modern regimes, the task had been to establish the incontestable authority of the ruler, and the surest way of doing so was instilling a belief that kingship was a divinely ordained office. 
a huge intellectual effort was invested in bolstering the sacred character of this office, exhibited in a variety of ceremonies, insignia, and rites, the objective of which was to promote a cult that placed the king above the people, making it easier to subject them to royal will. The point is that the struggle to establish political authority had always taken place in a symbolic setting. What I want to ask is whether in making the transition to modernity we have been able to jettison such tropes and commit ourselves to Paine's conviction that constitutional government now rests its authority on the power of reason. I will examine this question by contrasting three early modern scholars whose work has shaped the constitutional orders of Britain, the United States, and France. In each of these cases, the old regime had been destroyed by revolutionary upheaval, and seeking to reconstitute governmental authority for the modern era, the new political elites drew inspiration, respectively, from the works of Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. My objective is to show that their work presents us with three contrasting visions of constitutional order, that notwithstanding the rationalistic overlay, their schemes carry authority only when set in a symbolic frame, and that those schemes continue to fix the parameters of the modern constitutional imagination. I'm going to deal with this section of my talk in a rather truncated fashion. Hobbes's Leviathan brings us to the threshold of modernity. He jettisons the rhetoric of divine kingship and the imagery of organic order and replaces it with what he calls a new civil science deriving its method from the emerging natural sciences. But Hobbes accepts that the state is created purely as an act of imagination. And he is able to show compelling reasons why we should, should subject ourselves to the rule of an absolute sovereign only by presenting us with a dramatic fable of life without government in a state of nature. Only by virtue of this imaginary political pact do the many, the multitude, become a unity, a people. And only by virtue of this pact is the office of the sovereign, which acts as the representative of the will of the people, established. His entire scheme is created through symbolic representation bolstered by skillful use of iconography. Hobbes has almost nothing to say about the constitution of government, since all lawmaking authority vests in the sovereign. Government involves only a delegation of competences to subordinate officers. He provides us with the rationale of those who claim that the British constitution rests on a mere eight words. What the Crown in Parliament enacts is law. More precisely, he presents us with a purely heuristic account of the state. Any restraints on the sovereign are not legal, they are merely conventional. 
This is the scaffolding that sustains the constitutional imagination of the modern British state. Hobbes lays down the scheme of what I would call conventional constitutionalism, the nature of which is revealed not only in the British constitution, but also in in those regimes which, resting their authority on a theory of the state, adopt what might be called facade or aspirational constitutions. Hobbes' scheme is the direct point of departure for John Locke, who follows him in providing a fable of life in a state of nature, but offers a rather different picture of that life and a different justification for civil government. For Locke, society evolves prior to the formation of government, and people enter into a social contract only to ensure effective enforcement of natural law and for the better protection of their natural rights, and especially their rights of private property. Locke's social contract determines the limits of governmental authority, and it creates a formal constitution. Locke's account has inspired the American colonists in their struggle against the British crown. The Declaration of Independence may have been penned by Jefferson, but the ideas and many of the words are those of Locke. The subsequent constitutional settlement of 1789-91 fits Locke's scheme. Government is formed by a fundamental law of the Constitution. Its powers are divided so each agency checks the others and the Bill of Rights enumerates those rights that are preserved unto the people and form no part of the scheme of delegated governmental authority. Locke provides us with an account not only of government according to law but of government subject to law. This is the template of the modern liberal constitutional settlement in what I call negative constitutionalism. If Locke influences the American Revolution in the form of its constitution, then Rousseau performs a similar role with respect to the French. He rejects the earlier presentations of the social contract by Hobbes and Locke, as accounts not of man in a state of nature, but of bourgeois men corrupted already by property, competition, and social striving. These contracts, he argues, simply transform a skillful usurpation into an irrevocable right. Rousseau's social contract is an imaginative device for human renewal. For Rousseau, the sovereign is not an office, it is the people themselves who, by an act of association, form a state. It is this social contract to form a nation or a state that establishes the principle of their political equality and which guarantees their equal liberty. This principle of equal liberty and conditions of solidarity becomes the fundamental law of the political domain. Rousseau provides us with the essential elements of a scheme of positive constitutionalism in which 
liberty and equality are constructs of constitutional ordering. These schemes of Hobbes, Locke and Rousseau present contrasting accounts of an imaginary past, life without governing order in a state of nature for present and future purposes. They are schemes with a practical intent, or, as linguistic philosophers would say, they are types of speech act that possess an illocutionary force. Their objective is to open up new ways of conceiving political reality with the intention of motivating us to accept a particular vision of constitutional order. This call to action is formulated in the realm of the imagination. The question is, do these modern schemes take us beyond the forms of symbolic representation that underpinned pre-modern order? Those who deny any symbolic dimension claim that constitutional ordering is adequately expressed in the concept of the rule of law or the principle of constitutional supremacy. We maintain our faith in the rational intent expressed in the written document. Is this plausible? Hobbes felt the need to draw on a transcendent power, invoking the figure of the sovereign as a mortal god. Locke placed his faith in the natural law of a divine creator. And even Rousseau was obliged to to resort to this remarkable figure of the lawgiver as a surrogate for a divine source of authority, and thereafter to promote what he calls a civil religion. The common problem they faced is that once constitutional schemes rest their authority on the people and that entity steps out of the king's shadow and takes on a more active meaning, it becomes much more difficult to represent as a unity. This is the specific challenge of the modern constitutional imagination. The transcendent figure of the sovereign is overcome, and in Lafour's words, we are left with an empty place. It may be empty, but the place remains. In such circumstances, the political domain is obliged to locate the symbolic in collective self-representation. I want to suggest that the idea of collective self-representation is located at the core of the modern constitutional imagination and that its meaning depends on an interaction between the concepts of ideology and utopia. To develop this argument, the concept of ideology must first be extricated from its common polemical usage. This usage derives primarily from Marx, who sees it as a term to explain the way reality is obscured and distorted. 
Marx conceives reality to be the world of production, circulation, and exchange, and he argues that this productive human activity has a determinative determinative impact on the so-called superstructural elements of social life, religion, culture, art, politics, and law. The claim that the realm of ideas constitutes an autonomous reality, idealism, is equated to ideology. Ideology is false representation. This Marxist conception has had a significant impact on constitutional thought. In a celebrated lecture in 1862 on the nature of constitutions, Ferdinand LaSalle argued that the modern constitution is an ideological device. It's an ideological device that masks what he calls the material constitution of society that which expresses the actual power relations in society. This argument has since been adopted by many realist constitutional scholars. The problem doesn't lie in the identification of a relationship between the formal and material constitution. Marx is obviously right in saying that the ruling ideas are of an era are those of its ruling class. The problem arises because of the assumption that economic forces act on ideas in a causal fashion. Weber gets closer to the crux of the matter when suggesting that relations of domination are not primarily causal but motivational. He argues that a governing regime functions not only, and indeed not primarily, by force. It also operates on the basis of acquiescence and consent. Invoking the concept of legitimacy, Weber shows that a tension exists between a ruling authority's claim to legitimacy and the belief in that regime's legitimacy held by its subjects. Ideology occurs in the gap between a system of authority's claim to that legitimacy and our response in terms of belief. Ideology operates not just as distortion, it also acts as legitimation. The specific function of ideology is to bridge the credibility gap between claim and belief. Ricoeur takes Weber's analysis one stage further, and he does so by showing that in the political domain, action is already mediated and expressed in symbolic form. There can be no pre-ideological reality with respect to the constitution of political authority. The phenomenon we are dealing with is symbolic action. Ideology is not only distortive or legitimatory, it is also constitutive. Ideology is an expression of the fundamental symbolic structure of an association. 
the political domain is symbolically constituted and the function of ideology is to perform an integrative role in maintaining its identity. In this sense, we can say that the schemes of Hobbes, Locke and Rousseau are ideological. Each offers an account that strives to become constitutive of political reality. Each provides a distinctive scheme of symbolic representation by which the constitution of collective existence can be grasped. Ideology becomes the central concept of the constitutional imagination. We get a more rounded sense of the role of ideology by relating it to the concept of utopia. Utopia, the view from nowhere, highlights the contingency of the existing order by offering a vision of what might be. A utopia is not a mere dream. It is a scheme seeking actualization. Utopia is to constitution what invention is to science. The relationship then between ideology and utopia can now be specified. In the constitutional imagination, ideology is a technique of integration and utopia a technique of subversion. Ideology conceals the gap in legitimatory claims, whereas utopian thought exposes that gap. Ideology seeks to legitimate the surplus of governing power, domination, secreted within constitutional arrangements, whereas utopian thought conceives of the constitution as a vision of the political domain free from domination. This helps us understand the complexity of constitutional discourse. Debate rages on whether the appropriate theoretical frame is positivism or natural law, originalism or process theory, republicanism or liberalism, rights protection or pragmatic accommodation. Less commonly observed is the point that whatever the position, whatever the choice, that theory is expressed through the dialectic of ideology and utopia. Constitutional theories work only when the integrative function of ideology and the subversive function of utopia can be held in creative tension. This relationship, the relationship between thought, text and action, is enriched once we register the fact that ideology and utopia each have positive and negative attributes. The positive role of ideology is to promote social and political integration through constitutional ordering. For utopian thought, the positive role is promoting ideals that might be imminent within that constitutional text. But in its negative aspect, ideology masks forms of domination within those constitutional arrangements. And in striving for constitutional perfection, utopian thought simply marks a flight from political reality. 
The existence of that double dichotomy in these polar attributes complicates the practice. Is the ideological aspect integrative or distortive? Does the utopian aspect expose imminent potential or express a flight of fantasy? To have only the ideological ensures the Constitution remains trapped in history and is unable to do its work. To have only the utopian is to maintain the conceit that one can entirely escape through from history. Political authority is generated through constitutional order only by bringing the ideological and the utopian together in a dialectical relation. There are many reasons why this must remain a fluid and ambiguous practice, but they mostly boil down to the relationship between thought, text, and action. A governing regime is an existential fact, whereas a constitution is a product of thought. A governing regime is the result of a historic pattern of domination whereas a constitution is a product of rational consent. A constitution is an expression of formal equality, but in the process of establishing institutions of government, it creates a hierarchy. So the constitutional text exhibits a tension between thought and action, between form and function, between rationality and domination between norm and fact, between universal and particular. There's always a gulf between the text, the constitutional text, and the action, the governmental action. And it is within that gap between text and action that this dialectic of ideology and utopia does its work. The tensions between identity and possibility, conservation and innovation, ideology and utopia are not only ineradicable, they are functional. We can agree on one thing. This has been a rather abstract lecture. And even those of you who are still with me might be asking, so what? So, in the time remaining, I'll try to sketch some contemporary implications. I don't promise that I will resolve all your questions and puzzles about what I've said. Pain was right. The American Revolution has given us a new concept of constitution. It established a new practice of drafting constitutions and of then working to ensure that these written constitutions configure the domain of the political. In this endeavor, the Americans have undoubtedly achieved the greatest success. The American Constitution is not only the world's first modern written constitution, 
It has become the most permanent and the most fetishized in history. It's now commonly believed, for example, that it established the American state. And even the bloody civil war of the 1860s is treated by all parties as a struggle over conflicting interpretations of that constitution. The success of the colonizing movement elsewhere has been rather mixed. What cannot be denied, however, is that it's is its achievement in eroding the authority of conventional or customary constitutions. This explains the increasing loss of authority during the 20th century of British constitutional practices and the growing realisation that the only solution is to establish formal institutional safeguards. A related trend with more varied results can be seen in those regimes that have adopted written constitutions, but which, to put it mildly, remain only aspirational. Exemplary here is China, whose 1982 constitution safeguards fundamental rights, but it provides no independent means for their enforcement. The general point is that the constitutional imagination has evolved in such a way that arrangements framed under a Hobbesian scheme, one that places constitutional practices in the shadow of a looming state authority, no longer carry widespread support. But what about this distinction between negative and positive constitutionalism? During the 19th and early 20th centuries, the contrasting schemes of Locke and Rousseau marked, arguably, the polarities of ideology and utopia. The history of American constitutionalism is one in which the founding ideals of republicanism have, again, arguably, been suppressed and the liberal idea of negative constitutionalism becomes dominant. Negative constitutionalism was then exported to to Latin America, where constitutions have invariably been adopted as tools to guarantee the protection of rights, by which I mean the protection of private property rights. That the main purpose of written constitutions in the modern era has been to enforce the values of negative constitutionalism left a particular mark on those states that retain social revolutionary aspirations. In revolutionary France, for example, Robespierre drew a sharp distinction between revolutionary and constitutional government. The aim of constitutional government, he said, was merely to conserve the republic while that of revolutionary government was to establish it. Constitutional government sought to protect the individual against the abuses of public power, whereas revolutionary government needed to deploy public power to overcome those forces that sought 
to topple it. We don't have to buy all of Robespierre's political message to recognize the distinction, uh, one that's widely uh, reflected in this ambivalence that progressives have felt towards the modern idea of constitutionalism. This is illustrated indeed in the uncertain status of written constitutions in the modern French state. Since 1789, the French have adopted all of 12 constitutions. And during this period, they have experienced dictatorship, restored the monarchy, and established no fewer than five republics. The critical issue for the French, and for many states grappling with similar political questions, has been to determine who should hold power not what form that power might take. The political struggle has not been over the meaning of the Constitution. It's been over something deeper, the meaning of the ongoing revolution. Given the variable experience over the status of written Constitution, the claim that ours is an age of constitutionalism made by somebody about 40 minutes ago, needs some explanation. For it's only in the last 30 or so years that constitutions have been so prominent in political thought and practice. What I would say is this. The rise of constitutionalism does not mean that negative constitutionalism has triumphed. Today, the claims made of negative constitutionalism are thoroughly ideological in the pejorative sense. What is understood by constitutionalism today varies considerably from its 18th century meaning. We are not dealing with regimes of limited government that maintain a clear public-private divide, that organize their system of government in accordance with a clear separation of powers, and which adopt a constitution as a cordon to protect private autonomy. Government today is ubiquitous. There's scarcely an area of private, let alone social life, in which government agencies do not have some involvement. And the differentiation of legislative, executive, and judicial tasks has now become extremely blurred. If constitutions have colonized the political domain today, this is because we have experienced the rise of positive constitutionalism. Both the reason for this and the form it takes are contentious. The main reason is because of a recent emergence of the rights movement. The movement, the rights movement, does not seek to protect the pre-political character of individual rights of autonomy. It recognizes that rights have force only within a particular political regime. Its aim has been to convert all political discourse into the language of rights. It imagines the political domain as the expression of an order of values. The shape of this value order is negotiable, but that negotiation must take place through the language of rights. 
This is a powerful impetus leading to the constitutionalization of the political domain. The form which this constitutionalization takes is significant because the rise of positive constitutionalism has gone hand in hand with the decline of its utopian dimensions. Constitutionalism gathers force as the state loses its power to demand sacrifice from its subjects in the name of some future rewards. This was the driving force of Rousseau's notion of, the civil, of a civil religion, an exercise of forcing the people to be free in the name of human emancipation. Once positive constitutionalism loses its emancipatory aspirations, it takes on a different form. This is because government today presents itself predominantly in an administrative mode. Once government becomes both ubiquitous and technocratic, constitutionalism also tends to take on the form of an administrative rationale expressed in the language of subsidiarity, proportionality, and the balancing of rights claim. This is positive constitutionalism as ideology. Its aim is not emancipation, it is integration. Government today acquires its legitimacy not through transcendence, but through, and this is where Julia's right to move from public law, through its regulatory power, its ability to deploy its administrative apparatus to improve the life and health of its citizens. Notwithstanding those material achievements, the fact is that its underlying individualistic ethos, rights movement, and its predominant mode of instrumental rationality leads inevitably to social and political fragmentation. The consequence of which is that it becomes ever more difficult to maintain any common sense of purpose. Without a common purpose, without collective self-identity, the constitutional imagination cannot be sustained. To the extent that utopianism continues to be expressed within the constitutional imagination, it is losing its attachment to the nation, to the nation-state. It now seems to be expressed primarily through the claims of cosmopolitanism and universal human rights. But here, the prospects are not good. The movement in the early years of the new millennium to establish a constitutional foundation for the European Union offers a textbook illustration of the difficulties in that it exposed a great gulf between the claims made by the governing authorities and the beliefs held by subjects, a gulf that led to the disintegration of the Euro constitutional project and which might yet have further, deeper implications. 
Similarly, we must recognise that the human rights movement has emerged only as a result of the collapse of all other universalistic political schemes. The human rights movement is, in Samuel Moyne's ironic label, the last utopia. Ironic because it gains its momentum only when it shifts its register from the utopian to the ideological, from subversion to integration, from vision to technique of governance. It's for these reasons that we might conclude that we are living today in an age marked simultaneously by the triumph of constitutionalism, of ambiguity over its meaning, and of anxiety about its continuing authority. Paine may have been right in his prophecy that the American Revolution was bringing about a universal reformation that would situate the constitutional imagination at the core of the political domain. But today, and notwithstanding constitutionalism's many achievements, the narrative scheme, its positioning on the ideological utopian axis, and our sense of whether it it exhibits the positive or negative variants of those concepts has rarely been more acutely contested. Thank you.